Before we start, I want listeners to know that the information provided during the program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult with your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. As a mom with firsthand experience, the opinions expressed in this episode are those of my own and do not reflect the views of Providence. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Let's get back to the show. Welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode of the Do Tell Mama podcast. I'm your host, Julie Alexandria. My guest today is clinical hypnotherapist and CEO and director of the Orange County Hypnosis Center, Corey DeVille. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Today's topic is all about trauma. We're talking about birth trauma. We're talking about trauma in general. And this was something that was going on that I wasn't even aware of. And I want to start off with a little story of how we met and why I want to do this Mm -hmm. episode and why I'm (laughs) so looking forward to doing this episode. About two or three months ago, we were in Mission Viejo, California, shooting a video series for the Providence St. Joseph Health Hospitals for Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo. And in between takes, I was interviewing midwives and doctors and OBGYNs and labor and delivery nurses, and we had a bit of a a, a break in between takes, and I asked one of the doctors, I said, hey, doctor, is it possible to go into labor, but to be completely knocked out and to, you know, have a nice sedative, kind of like a little cocktail, not like a real cocktail, but like a sedative (laughs) cocktail in that twilight sleep, and just to be put to sleep and then to wake up in the recovery room and there's your baby and you feel no pain and boom, you're done. You don't have to go through the labor, you don't have to go through the epidural, you don't have to go (laughs) through being rolled into the operating room to get a C-section. You can just wake up refreshed and your baby is sitting next to you. Is that possible? And he looks at me and he's like, um, well, I." I don't, why would you want that? (laughs) And I said, well, because I don't want to ever have to go through what I went through Mm. after the birth of my first child of my little boy, Kingston. And I said, is it possible that the next time, if there is next time, if I can just be put to sleep and wake (laughs) up and and there's me and there's my baby and everything's perfect. (laughs) And he's like, he looks at me quizzically and he says, I think you were traumatized. Mm. I think that you have suffered from birth trauma. And mm-hmm. there was that word, birth trauma. And yeah. I never heard this word before. I never heard the phrase birth trauma before. And I thought, well, no, I just had a really awful time in the delivery room and it was really scary and I have nightmares. Okay, yes, 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 I had birth trauma. <laughs> That's exactly what I had. Thank you for coining the phrase. So he then proceeds to take out a business card from his jacket his lab coat, and he wrote down your name Mm. and your phone number. Mm -hmm. And he said, you need to go see Corey. I refer a lot of women to him who Mm. have gone through birth trauma. Mm -hmm. And he said, make an appointment. And if Mm. you can't get in, I'll put in a special call for you because you really need help. (laughs) (laughs) So I was so grateful. I went home that evening and I texted you. I called you that night Mm -hmm. and you were able to see me the next day. And we had an incredible session. And I am completely new to hypnosis. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't really know what to expect. And I Mm -hmm. purposefully did not do any research because I wanted to just kind of um, submit myself to (laughs) the process and to see what it was about. And for those who do not know, I know you can explain it so much better. What exactly is hypnosis and how can you heal from birth trauma? Yeah, well, it's actually a fascinating subject and it's held my interest for more than 50 years. And basically what it has to do with is the subconscious mind. Uh, So much of what we experience and cling to on an emotional, physical, cellular, and even spiritual level has to do with traumas that we've experienced in one way or another in our lifetime. And on a conscious level, we do one of three things, or maybe all three of these things, generally speaking, when it is trauma, we either suppress it and we don't acknowledge it uh, for however long it takes for it to surface in our consciousness in one way or another. Um, The second way is avoidance. 
whenever we get emotionally triggered by something, uh, the tendencies are to avoid it as much as possible because it, it feels like a threat on some level. So we'll avoid it. And the avoidance part of this is, is to get busy doing anything but think about whatever that emotional issue is. And that can also turn into things like obsessive compulsive disorders. Uh, many of them, and I've worked with probably thousands of people over the years that have had uh, compulsive disorders that were readily cured almost in a single session. All we had to do was find out where the trauma actually came from and those noticeable ticks or movements, whatever they were, get resolved in a single session when we find out where the actual trauma came from and we release it from that point. Um, so that's the second area is uh, avoidance. The third area is one that probably most people are familiar with and that's medicating ourselves out of that trauma, whatever it happens to be. We'll find a way, um, you know, it could be food, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be any number of other things. But those are the three ways that we generally are dealing with, uh, with traumas. Could be with negative relationships. Many people make that adjustment, yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately. And then, you know, it winds up becoming um, a difficult thing to get out of because now you have another person's emotions invested in something. And even as a person clears their own trauma, they still have another person in their lives they're dealing with and that can hold them back as well because they want to make the relationship work but they're realizing on some level that if unless that other person takes the same kinds of steps to do something about their traumas it's not going to work mm -hmm. you know we can get on the same page and and I do work with a lot of people who have emotional uh, issues in their relationships that stem from parents you know, the kinds of difficult issues that do happen in, in households. Sometimes people stay together to a huge degree because, you know, the children, they'll say, you know, we got to stay together because the kids are more important than our, uh, our relationship and getting along and that sort of thing. But what are the children learning? That an ugly relationship is doable, you know, that kind of thing. When, in fact, they could create a dynamic that would bring harmony to that situation, unfortunately, they don't know how to do it. And, and I always say this to people that most of the time we're acting out of a volition that really isn't ours. And we're behaving in a way that is not appropriate, so to speak, not because we want to, but because we don't know how not to. And that's where the trauma comes in. That's, that's a big part of the behavior patterns that we're having is that we're, it's, it's not that we want to be unhappy, we just don't know how to let that unhappy behavior go that will move us in the dynamic of having a really positive life, a very healthy, optimistic outlook, that sort of thing. It's all there in all of us. It really is. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, when I, I use this example with people all the time, um, and stop me as I'm going along here, uh, you know, but I just, one of the things that I talk about with people when they say, well, how do I know that I have the, the makeup in my family to be optimistic or to be healthy or to be, you know, moving in a positive direction? And I always say, well, you learned how to walk, didn't you? And they always go, what are you talking about? And uh, one of my teachers many, many years ago used to say that if we had to learn how to walk when we're 30 years old, we'd all be crawling. And the reason is because by that time, we've had so much of our optimism literally beaten out of us through trauma and life, you know, adversity, that sort of thing, that we don't have that optimism we, we had as an infant looking at grown-ups, walking on two feet, when we know that being on all fours is so secure. You know, we don't, we don't fall over if we hit the edge of a carpet or something like that. We just make the adjustment. But to learn how to put ourselves in a constant state of imbalance and to move around with that kind of um, emotion takes an enormous amount of work. And children don't have anyone to tell them, these are the muscles you're going to employ in order for you to walk or move forward on two feet. They just watch and do it. And they fall down a bazillion times, but they always get up and they're laughing and they just keep doing it. And eventually they overcome that initial obstacle. Well, we all have that child in us. The thing is, it's been either suppressed or it's been moved around in some way to where we're not acknowledging it anymore. 
we're basically operating out of a consciousness that uh, that is basically what I call compliance to an environment of limitations that basically we grew up in. I'll stop there and let you ask some questions. No, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because all I can think of is that to make that mental switch to say, I am going to change this, mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people do not like to be in discomfort. And mm -hmm. it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of bravery and it's a big risk. Mm -hmm. to then change that behavior because right. it takes more than just wanting to change the behavior. Right. It's wanting to change the behavior and wanting to do something about it. So mm -hmm. you mentioned something before about the first step is to identify when the trauma happened, mm -hmm. what was the trauma. How do you do that? Well, most people have suppressed it to the degree that they don't even know what it is. And that's why there's an inhibitor there with standard therapy because we're basically counting on the person to know where the trauma came from. When the reality is, is that usually when the trauma that they're coming in to see me about, when that trauma occurred, it was basically the straw, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Then we start from there, and that's what standard therapy does. You know, we start from what it is that the person is observing in their lives that is creating a certain degree of trauma. But the reality is that we've had all of these other issues that have gone on from even, you know, I know there may be some people that might not even believe in this sort of thing, but previous lives or something like that. But we've had a lot of traumas that have been in every area you can imagine. And what happens is those traumas culminate into our tendencies. The tendencies then are something that we're witnessing on a, on a conscious level because they're pretty much on the surface. But the reality is that that's a culmination of a bazillion other thoughts, uh, other things that have happened to us at many different times and places that we don't even cognitively understand or know about. So what I found in the process that I developed over these years is that the subconscious mind knows and remembers everything. And that's the beauty of it, that all I have to do is get a person into a very, very mild state of hypnosis, as you know, and then we let the subconscious mind answer the questions. And more often than not, people will think the issue that they were thinking was the one that created this dynamic of, uh, you know, let's say, fear or anxiety or anger or whatever. They'll find out that it goes much farther back than that. And sometimes it can go all the way back to the womb. It can actually, you know, be something that the mother was experiencing during uh, her pregnancy or something that happened, let's say, like we were talking about, the, the difficulty at birthing, you know, something along those lines. And the child, as innocent as we are in that state, we're picking up all of that information and then processing it on some level. Now, we may not express it immediately afterwards, although some children do. What happens is it's time sensitive. And eventually, over a period of time, when sometimes the child is the age that the mother was when she was that, experiencing that trauma, that's when the child will suddenly experience it again. And it's like, it came out of nowhere. I have no idea what this is, you know, that kind of thing. And they'll come in and say, well, you know, help me. And it, there's a logical explanation for it. There really is. All we have to do is trace it back. And that's the fascinating <laughs> part of it, because it does get quite interesting when we go back to things like, you know, the, maybe the month that, uh, of pregnancy, I've had that happen, that it was during a certain time during the person's pregnancy, and it was important, as you know, when I'm doing this process, I'll be asking the subconscious mind, is it important for us to know, let's say, the time of year? Is it important for us to know the month of the pregnancy or whatever it happens to be. And, and in that time frame, what happens is there's a direct correlation to whatever it is they're feeling that has to do with that particular time frame. Uh, many times I've worked with people that, you know, the mother had a trauma in the sixth month of pregnancy, that sort of thing. And it was just important for the client to know that that's the month that this trauma occurred. Now, they don't know what the trauma was, but in asking their parent, let's say afterwards, after we've let go of the trauma, 
they're curious, you know, most people are, you know, what was it that created this, you know, this issue going on in the sixth month of pregnancy? And invariably, the mother will say something like, oh, wow, uh, I, how would you know that? You know, but yes, there was something that did happen at that particular point in time. And I just want you to know that it had nothing to do with you. You know, I always wanted to have you. You're my baby. I love you. All of that stuff. But during that particular point in time, there was a trauma that occurred and it made the child feel, uh, on some level, made them feel uh, frightened. Um, how many cases have you experienced um, where someone comes in and says, I had a traumatic birth? Wow. Well, almost, I'd say probably 15 to 25% of the people that I get usually from OBGYNs um, have something along those lines. <laughs> it's either the mother was having difficulty with the, the birthing process, uh, the person who's actually in my office, or their parent had some issue with the birthing process. And then again, it's time sensitive. It winds up becoming something they're experiencing in their delivery that is kind of a carryover from something that their parent experienced. Uh, it's fascinating. It seems like a you know, kind of almost matrix of different possibilities. But once you know how to get to the, the memory, once you know how to get to that part of us that does know where it came from, <coughs> I find we don't have to know all of the little itty bitty minuscule things about it. I'm always asking the subconscious mind things like, okay, is this all we need to know for us to move forward? Mm -hmm. So if we take it back, sometimes we'll take it back to maybe you know a person's, let's say adolescence something dramatic may have happened at that point in time. And I'll take it back, usually I'll go back in terms of years, I'll say, okay, did this trauma happen before the age of 20? Something like that. And if the subconscious mind says, yes, nice, take it back, okay, did it happen before the age of 10? And if it says no, then I know it's between 10 and 20. And then I move forward with it, okay, did it happen between the ages of 15 and 20? And if it says yes at that point, I'll usually say, is this all we need to know? And then the subconscious mind will either say yes or no. It's more important we need to know. Sometimes it's the time of year. It's, it's the exact year or month <coughs> of that person's life experience. Whatever it happens to be, we need to know a few more of the particulars. Mm -hmm. And once we get the particulars, and then we can move forward. It's very, very... It, it seems detailed, I think, on some level when I talk about it this way, but it really isn't if we know how to narrow it down to, to where it originally came from. And let's talk about the process because when you mention hypnotherapy, hypnosis, mm -hmm. people have this image in their mind of like, you know, a pocket watch um, oh, yeah. as a pendulum <laughs> swaying in front yeah. of their eyes and then they get up and do crazy stuff at like, you know, at parties or something. Mm -hmm. That is, could not be further from the truth of what your practice is. Right, yeah. Can you explain for any skeptic out there or someone who just doesn't know and has never done hypnosis or never been put under hypnosis, mm -hmm. what your process is and if you feel comfortable explaining it? Sure, yeah. Well, it actually, my initial process in, in learning about mesmerization came from a show called The Ed Sullivan Show that was on back in the 50s and the 60s. And I witnessed on the show uh, a man hypnotizing a woman from the audience and she was probably about five feet tall. And he suggested to her in that hypnotic state that she would be, her body would become rigid, very, very rigid, like a board. And then he, with the help of a couple of people on the stage, they had her lean back and her body remained perfectly rigid. And he put her head, the back of her head, on a chair and he put her heels on another chair with nothing in between. Now she was, her body was facing up and as you know, or can imagine, if you were in that position, it would be very hard to keep your body rigid. Now, then he solicited some people from the audience to come up on the stage and sit on this woman while she was hypnotized and her body didn't move. It was absolutely rigid. And then, you know, he excused the people who came up and all of that stuff and brought her and got her to stand up again and brought her out of hypnosis. And I was just hooked. I thought, you know, these superhuman types of things, is that really possible? Um, so I was fascinated by that. And then, of course, I started, you know, delving into, you know, at the library, because we didn't have the internet back then. But I started reading about people 
uh, like Franz Mesmer, and you know he was an 18th century physician who was known for uh, healing people with just conversation. And it was fascinating to me. I, I just thought, well, is that possible? Is that something that can really be done? And of course it can, you know, it was just the process of suggestion and it had a lot to do with his voice. It had a lot to do with the way he spoke, that sort of thing. But the reality is that if a person is negatively influenced, let's say by trauma, they can also be positively influenced by a person's optimism or a friendly voice, or, you know, there's a kindness that happens, I think, and sometimes, uh, the way a person speaks, the intonation, you know, there's a, there's a hypnotic quality about a certain type of voice, let's say. Yeah. Uh, we're fascinated by sounds. Mm -hmm. So anyway, how this all then culminated in my consciousness to, um, to actually becoming a hypnotherapist was when I was about 16, I actually was hypnotizing people at parties. And I was doing the stuff that everybody else sees on TV, you know, I uh, would tell, uh, suggest to a person under hypnosis that the number four would be missing from the numerical system, something like that. And then while they were under, you know, I just talked to them briefly and then I'd bring them out of it and then I'd ask them, I always ask them, and this is key to why it, it fascinated me. I'd bring them out of hypnosis and I'd say, okay, do you remember what we were talking about there? And they'd say, yep. And I'd say, were you hypnotized? And they'd say, nope. They always said no. I'd say, okay, well, how many fingers do you have? And they'd say, well, of course I have 10. I'd say, really, five on each hand? Yep, okay, could you count them for me? And they'd always do it like this. One, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, <laughs> 10, 11. <laughs> and they'd be looking at their hands and you know, I'd say, you sure you have five on each hand? They'd say, yeah, of course. And I'd say, and that adds up to 10, right? Yep, can you count them for me? And they'd do the same thing again. And everybody, of course, is laughing and all of that stuff. But what was fascinating about it to me was beyond the suggestion was that when I brought them out of it, completely out of it, and the number four was back in the numerical system, they would always own what I suggested to them. In other words, they, they'd defend it. They'd say, well, yeah, I remember you saying that, but I, I didn't want to embarrass you. And I'd say, but you were embarrassing yourself. And they'd say, yeah, I know. I, I don't know why I did that. And it was fascinating, you know, that people would own these, let's say, introductions of a different way of thinking. But it caused me to start looking at what we do with our traumas. How do we defend these behaviors? Well, we do the same thing all the time. We're constantly in a process of defending, let's say, less than desirable behaviors because we own them and we think of them as being a part of who we are. And then it, it caused me to get even deeper into why would we do that? Why would we literally defend a negative behavior that we really would rather not have? Why would we defend that? Well, I, I, there's a person named Brent Phillips who was an MIT grad who came up with these reasons for why we defend our negative behaviors. And I found them to be absolutely spot on. One of them is we defend it because we feel safe. There's a safety factor in holding on to a negative emotion. Even fear mm -hmm. can create a dynamic of feeling safe in a person, even though fear itself is not feeling safe, right? But there are other ones like uh, um, holding on to this uh, trauma um, is uh, a means by which I can prevent it from happening again. You know, we don't want the same thing to happen again, so we hold on to the trauma thinking that lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place. Uh, another reason is there's something I need to learn from it. One of the common reasons is people will hold on to it is because uh, they have held on to it so long they don't know who they'd be without it. They identify with it. And oh, one of that's the, so true. Yeah. Gosh, that's so true. And they wear it like a badge. Right. And you can see it coming a mm -hmm. mile away. Yeah. And it's incredible how much we rationalize to ourselves mm -hmm. that this is okay behavior because it's comfortable. Right. This is just who I am. Right. And I mean, how many times have we all heard that in one way or another, even when the person or the host of that negative behavior wishes they didn't have it, right. but they're defending it. Well, this is just who I am. You got to accept me. This is just who I am. Really? Yeah. You know, we could change that. Oh. And we do all the time here. I feel that way about people who say, I have no filter. Mm -hmm. I have no filter. 
you're saying is you have granted yourself the right to think and say whatever you want about whoever without any consequence mm -hmm. or without any concern mm -hmm. for their feeling mm -hmm. or how it may come off and, and a complete lack of self-awareness. Mm -hmm. But yet that is a coat that they wear mm -hmm. with great pride because it shields them from having to answer to anyone else mm -hmm. and to have to be apologetic or kind in any way. <laughs> but that's just a quick example. Um, but I'm just so fascinated as to how you started your career in this. You were saying you started off doing this at parties, but mm -hmm. now this has grown into such an incredible business for you. Yeah. At what point did you realize that you have a gift and that you really had something here? Well, it took a while. Uh, like I said, in the beginning, I was just basically helping people get over smoking or something like that, you know, drinking, those kinds of issues. And that's what most hypnotherapists do. Because there are a lot of people that have these habits and they'd really like to get rid of them. So they find that by substituting something like nicotine, uh, Nicorette or whatever it is, you know, vaping, now we find out that that's even more destructive than, than smoking. But um, yeah, people will develop these other, um, let's say, aberrant behaviors. And when they know that if they are put under, let's say, and the person suggests to them that they can replace that behavior with another behavior, uh, then they're okay with it. So it's always about that. You know, it's about putting in another program, so to speak. Uh, I remember having this with, with somebody early on uh, who wanted to quit eating Oreo cookies. <laughs> Nothing, not saying Oreo cookies are bad. I love Oreo cookies, okay? <laughs> Just want whoever's out there sponsoring this, whatever. I, you know, I happen to like cookies. But she didn't. She wanted to get over her addiction to Oreo cookies. And in, in my first session with her, I just said, okay, is there some food that you don't like? Mm. And she said, yeah, I hate Brussels sprouts. And I said, okay. So I put her under and I said, from now on, I suggested to her, from now on, Oreo cookies are going to taste like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> so I brought her out of that, you know, and then, of course, I offered her a cookie and she went, oh, oh my gosh, no, I don't want to eat that. But what happened with her that does happen with a lot of other people is that in about two weeks she came back and now she had an addiction to ding-dongs you know and it was you know she didn't actually let go of the trauma you see that was what was going on there was a trauma underneath all of that that had to do with her mother and her mother's perspective of her and this fact that she was always going to be fat and that she was always going to be stuffing herself with Oreo cookies and that kind of thing. And these were like the words of her mother, not hers. But that was what was playing in her consciousness. So it, was, it wound up just being transferred to another addictive behavior. The, you know, the, the Oreos tasting like Brussels sprouts was something she could just put into the background and then like find you know, ding-dongs or Twinkies to replace them. What I found that works is when we go back to the original source of the trauma and we let go of the trauma itself, the negative behavior is no longer in existence. The adjustment that we made is no longer necessary. I'll give you a real quick example of that with somebody that I didn't even uh, suggest this to. She came in, she, she was having a relationship issue and we started working on that. And I, again, I did this biofeedback thing I do with people to find out where the original source of it came from. And we found out that it had something to do with her father and abandonment, that sort of thing. And we let that trauma go. And then she, she, was, she came out of it, she was fine, she felt really wonderful, she left and thanked me. And then about two or three hours later, she called me and said, you know, I don't remember you saying anything about quitting smoking. And I said, no, you didn't tell me that you were a smoker. I didn't know that you were. And she said, well, yeah, I was actually looking forward to driving home and smoking on the way and thinking about what, what we talked about. And I said, well, what happened? She said, well, I don't want to smoke. And you didn't even say anything about it. And I said, well, okay, that makes sense. She said, how so? And I said, well, the smoking was an adjustment that she had made. Right. to the trauma of the difficulty in her relationship. That was another adjustment. When the trauma wasn't there, the behavior didn't need to be there anymore either. In fact, she was looking at those cigarettes all the way home and thinking, I don't even want to open that pack. I don't even want to smoke that. It just doesn't make sense to me. 
But once she understood where that came from, mm -hmm. the negative behavior, like I said, didn't have to be replaced with something else. The behavior itself was no longer necessary. That's incredible because something we talked about before we started recording was that trauma, if I could put it into a sort of visual connotation, mm -hmm. trauma to me is an iceberg. What we see, what we feel, what we're aware of mm -hmm. is what's on the surface. Right. But in reality, trauma, if you go back, it has deep roots. Mm -hmm. And when you look at an iceberg, below the surface is where the the tonnage really is. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what's so scary, but that's also what makes it so imperative to work through mm -hmm. and to break through. And one of the things that you helped me with so much that has stuck with me to this moment upon leaving your office was letting go of the anger. Mm -hmm. I remember when I came in here, you asked me, where's your anger at? Yeah. You know, <laughs> place your anger on a, a scale of one to 10. And I think I said, it's like a 9.95. <laughs> like I yeah. was so angry, <clears throat> excuse me. And I was harboring so much anger for the doctors, for the doula who I paid a thousand dollars for and mm. who in the middle of my labor said, I'm sorry, I, I, I have a, a personal matter. I, I have to go. <laughs> and who no. left, like literally walked out of the labor and delivery room and who left. Oh. I wouldn't even mention her name because like we all have like, you know, personal issues and I don't want to come down on her because who knows what it may have been. But it's like, if you know that you have something like that, you know, just do the due diligence and get a backup anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but I had so much anger and I was holding on to so much negativity for mm -hmm. the doctors, for the anesthesiologist whose um, epidural did not work, who mm -hmm. then, um, I had two failed epidurals. He then came into uh, my recovery room a day later and at the hospital and personally apologized to me. Of mm. course, I was just like, get out of my face, dude. Like, I was still so angry yeah. at him. And he said, I quote, he said, you're actually the third woman that this has happened to, so we're just going to get a new batch. I just wanted you to know I'm really sorry. And I'm mm. like, Bruh. like, come on, dude. Get a new batch. Get a new supplier. Anyway, um, I was holding on to so much anger. And by the time I left your office, you said, where's your anger? Well, it, sort of in between, you did a little check-in. You said, where's your anger? I said, at a six. And you said, okay, we're going to try to get that down. Mm -hmm. And then we came back. We did a little more work, and we came back, and you said, where's your anger? And I said, at a three. And you said, okay, I think we can do better. And we did a little more work, and we started talking more, and we were taking notes. And by the end, I was able to let go physically emotionally just had a watershed moment of being able to let go of the anger. And by the time I left here, you would ask me and I said, it's at a one, if that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you had said that stuck with me was that, you know, you are going over this and over this in your mind mm -hmm. on a daily basis. And it was hounding me. It was, it was haunting me. It was something that was so awful. I mean, it's really sad that like I look back on the birth of my first child and I'm like, that's, that was the worst 48 hour period mm -hmm. I've ever had in my life. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to admit that. Nobody wants to say that mm -hmm. when you think of that. And I really hope that my poor, my little baby boy doesn't <laughs> yeah. take that on with him. And I think it's something we're going to have to talk about in the future so that he doesn't harbor that right. because I don't want him to come into this world and to grow up in this world knowing that his first 48 hours in this world were his mom's worst 48 mm. hours. And by no means his fault, right. not by my fault, not by anybody's fault, just genetics and modern science and whatever it is. But you had said, you know, you're carrying this around mm -hmm. with you every day, every mm. moment of every day. Yeah. Those doctors, they're not thinking about you at all. Yeah. They, they, they probably don't even remember your name. And, and it's true. They, they see a million women. They deliver a million babies. Like, they don't remember, you know, from one day to the next. And they shouldn't. That's, you know, their job. And that right there just puts so much in perspective for me. Mm -hmm. I thought, gosh, why am I giving so much of this energy that is negative, fearful, hateful, mm -hmm. resentful, anger, angry energy that I'm giving to this thing mm -hmm. that is so unrequited, mm -hmm. so unreciprocated, 
it is just, it is a nothing. And it wasn't until recently that I actually had a chance to talk to my doctor. I went back to see her and I kind of got it out. Did you? I did. I mm. sat down with her and I said, just so you know, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm like still a little, you know, traumatized. I said, but I've been doing the work and I've been reminding myself, you know, anytime I feel those feelings of anger and resentment for what happened in those 48 mm -hmm. hours, I think back to our session mm -hmm. when you said to me again, they are not thinking about you. They are, they don't care that you had a bad experience mm -hmm. and to let it go. Mm -hmm. And it definitely, you know, sometimes I'll feel it bubble back up, but it never has gotten back to where it was mm -hmm. when we first started. So mm -hmm. for that, I am eternally grateful mm -hmm. because it wasn't doing me any good right. and I was carrying it around mm -hmm. like this weight mm -hmm. and someone once uh, put it visually so well that carrying around resentment or anger for someone who has no clue is like flying a kite in a hurricane mm -hmm. you know you're, you're holding on so tight right. and the kite is you know spinnakering out <laughs> of control and um and and it's really hard that takes a lot of energy exactly. to do that and mm -hmm. you know I would like to at some point go in maybe with a, a clinical doctor about why we're seeing a rise in birth trauma mm. with women. I think one of the biggest things and something I'll ask you, I know, you know, doctor, um, keeping your patient's confidentiality, but I wonder if there was a correlation between age and birth trauma. Are we seeing, mm. because we're seeing more women having babies and giving birth and getting pregnant later in life, mm -hmm. are we seeing a rise in dramatic and traumatic births? Mm. It's interesting. Uh, you know, I hadn't personally done a study along those lines, but I have found that the, the, the age range of the people who are experiencing, let's say, a postpartum or, you know, some trauma associated with it are definitely older. You know, instead of in their early 20s, let's say they're maybe between 25 and 40, that kind of age range. I think that isolating it to an age, though, is, is really limiting what we should be looking at. There's a lot of things there that, that have to do with, with people being, I think, a little bit more mature, let's say, in terms of picking a partner and that sort of thing, which I think is a positive thing. Yeah. When we're early on, I got married when I was 22 and I was divorced by 27. It was not a good thing for me. But um, with a lot of other people at that age, at that delicate age, we really haven't established ourselves in a, in a, in a real kind of firm way about who we really are and you know, have answered some serious questions about what it is we want out of life. So we're kind of learning through that process with another person. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's that piece to it as well. And I find that psychologically, uh, you know, especially with my practice, that I do see people who are older in it, uh, involved in birthing and that sort of thing. But another thing that I, I wanted to talk about regarding this too has to do with um, the negative emotions that we're experiencing and our defense of them. Uh, it, it, people will say, you know, Things like, well, now that I cleared that, um, is the world now going to be completely different? And the fact of the matter is the world is always going to be the way the world is. It's very unpredictable. It's very chaotic. But the tools that you develop from it are what you were talking about. When we're holding on to negative emotions, any of them, whether it's apathy, grief, fear, whatever, those negative emotions are like us taking poison and expecting the other person that we're angry at to die. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yes. You know, it, but that's really what it's like. Yeah. We're, we're thinking by holding on to this, somehow we're getting back at them when in fact we're only limiting our own lives. So we have to get to a place where we, we see the practicality in letting go, but it does go a little farther than that because many times people will say to themselves, this doesn't make sense for me to hold on to this anymore. I, I wanna be free of it, but there's something that keeps holding me to it. That's when the biofeedback is very important because for instance, I had somebody in here yesterday that had this, I mean, uh, uh, in terms of uh, trauma, this person had it all. 
Yes, people in her family committed suicide, drug addicts, people in prison. I mean, you name it, they've been through it. How she survived in that environment, went to college and wound up getting an education is still, I mean, fascinating to me. That there are some people who just, in spite of their environment, still rise to a, an, an extraordinary level of success. The problem is the anger, the fear was still there. Now she used it as if it were a tool. When she got to the other side of all of this, that tool was no longer useful. In other words, that anger was something that made her be number one in her class. It made her rise to the top of uh, you know, her graduate studies and all of that stuff that was this drive, this real you know, solid anger. But now on the other side of all of that, where does it go? It's like a general who doesn't have a war to go to. What do we do with it then? Where are we gonna take it now? And that's when it goes within and that's when it starts making us sick. And that's when we're talking about the, the emotional trauma becoming physical and then even becoming cellular. And on some level, like I said, sometimes it's even spiritual. But those levels of trauma are related to each other. If we don't solve it when it's emotional, it escalates to the point of becoming physical. Mm -hmm. And if we don't solve it when it's physical, it escalates to the point of becoming cellular. And when it's cellular, that simply means that it attacks the immune system, where the physical aspect of it is more like, let's say a person who worries a lot usually has stomach aches. Mm. You know, they'll have an ulcer or something like that, ulcerative colitis, that sort of thing. It does manifest in terms of a physical malady in one way or another, but all of these are resolvable, even on a cellular level. They're resolvable. All we have to do is get to the original source and let it go from that, that level. Um, and then the results are, are exponential. Are there things that someone that you can do at home if you're listening to this and you're like, you know what, I have suffered a lot. There's mm. a lot that I need to get through. Um, perhaps I don't have the means or I'm not in the right location to find a hypnotherapist near mm -hmm. me to really talk about these things. What is something that you can do at home to kind of at least start chipping away at that iceberg? Well, a couple of things, I think. Um, first and foremost, I would recommend that a person recognize how these are impacting us. I like to look at it from the standpoint of like a pyramid. The, the basis or the most fundamental uh, foundation, let's say, of, of our thought processes is what we're thinking every day. Those thoughts, for the most part, have been influenced sometimes appropriately or sometimes inappropriately by our environment. And those thoughts are going on to the tune of who knows, maybe a million, two million, ten million thoughts going on on a subliminal level every day. But they basically culminate into our tendencies. And this is something I learned from a man named Lester Levinson, who has a process called the Sedona Method, which basically is about letting go of trauma. Uh, or and this, they don't call it trauma, but they call it a, a negative emotion, let's say. What happens is all of those thoughts culminate into tendencies. The tendencies can be maybe a hundred tendencies that we have during the course of a day. But if you think about this, if we let go of the tendencies when they're apparent, let's say I'm, I'm moving in the direction of being angry right now, could I let that anger go? Is it possible for me to let it go? Well, it is. It's very simple actually. If we look at it from the standpoint of just noticing something that I usually tell people. And negative emotions don't have claws. And they're not made of Velcro. We're holding on to them. We just need to know that we can let them go. Now on a surface level to begin with, it is important to know that you can let them go. It's no different than holding a, a, a pen like this. And uh, one of the processes that they use in the Sedona method is they'll say, could you let that go? Mm. Well, we know that we can let it go. But the second question is, would you let it go? The second question is really profoundly important because we're holding on because we think we need it for some reason. But if we look at it from the standpoint of that statement I made before, holding on to a negative emotion towards someone or something is like taking poison and thinking they're gonna die. Why would you hold on to it? When you can still function in life without it, could I let it go? Would I let it go? And then of course the ultimate question is yes. 
When are you going to do it? Now. Now is the best time. So that process, I find that, that again, if people want to research the Sedona method, I think it's very useful on a conscious level to let go of things from that perspective. There's a practicality to it that makes a lot of sense. Now, I know there are going to be other people, because I see them all the time, who go through that process and they say, yeah, but you know, I did that, but, I, but there's something else. Well, that's when I can really help them, because I know that by taking them back and doing the biofeedback process that I do, I can find out where that original source was. And when we let go of it from there, the effect is like dominoes. All of those negative behaviors and the reasons for why we're holding on are no longer substantiated in our conscious mind anymore. We don't have to justify it anymore. Then it becomes very practical and very easy, and all we have to do is let it go. And people will do, as, as I have done, uh, something that you did, is that on the other side of it, when there isn't all this anger, you can actually talk to the person about it and say, you know what, maybe in the future, you might want to have a backup. You might want to do this because that experience was very traumatizing for me. I'm not here to sue you. I'm not here to you know, do something destructive to you. I don't want to hurt anybody. I'm just saying that maybe in your practice there might be a better way to, to organize your, your facility and you know, have a backup plan or something like that that will take care of this, this kind of issue should it come up again. And again, if there's a right way that we can talk to people about improving their behaviors, just like in relationships. I do this with couples all the time. You know, it's how they're discussing it. When we're talking out of pain, we're talking out of anger or resentment, the other person is getting the resentment, they're getting the pain, they're getting all of that, and they're not hearing what you're saying. If we let go of all of that emotional trauma, so to speak, and we just speak out of clarity, what happens is this wonderful understanding happens. All of a sudden, we're communicating, we're exchanging thoughts and ideas, and we're moving in the same direction. Now you've mentioned the term biofeedback a few times. Mm -hmm. What exactly, if you could sort of quickly run that down, what that means? Well, that's, that's my form of, of um, getting to the actual source of the trauma. And most of the time, like I said, most people don't know where the original source of it is. They can let go of, let's say, the initial negativity on a surface level because if they realize that all they're doing with the negative emotion is justifying it in the moment, um, then they can start the process of letting go of that negative emotion because it's not serving them. But the biofeedback is actually getting to that part of the subconscious mind that actually knows where the trauma came from. And it goes back so far sometimes and so is so detailed that most people are shocked that they actually have this kind of memory. But we're all geniuses. And that's a hard thing for people to understand. But really, when you think about it, even people like Bruce Lipton, who's you know, taught you know, biology in all kinds of different places and is a wonderful speaker, talks about this. Um, uh, at length when he's doing lectures, that our conscious mind is able to process somewhere around, I guess the, the numbers are probably skewed depending on who's talking, but generally it runs somewhere between 200,000 to maybe 500,000 bits of information per second. That's how our conscious mind is working. It's like a smartphone. Brilliant. Our subconscious mind, on the other hand, is processing somewhere between maybe 4 and 10 trillion bits of information per second. So there's no question about where the control is in the, in the, you know, if you're arguing with your subconscious mind, your subconscious mind is going to win because that's where all the power is. But your subconscious mind is actually operating with the, the mindset, basically, of an innocent child. It's like a four or five-year-old child. It's holding on to those traumas because it believes that they're useful in some way. And all we have to do is take that reason away, let that child, let the trauma go, and the process, uh, the healing, and I mean in terms of like physical healing, is exponential. It happens so fast that the lady that I had in here yesterday who had come in, when I asked her how high her anger was, it was like a 20. You know, I, I gave her a scale of one to 10. She said, no, 10 is not enough. This is a 20. 
you know, I don't even know if there's a, a way that I can get to it. By the time she left, it was non-existent. Oh. She said, I, I, I can't find it. I, I don't know where it is. And the reason is because she let go of it from where it actually came from. And the feeling in the moment was, I don't have to justify all this anger toward my parents or the people in my life that, you know, were drug addicts or whatever it was, that environment. That was just their level of, of, of awakening, and she was fine with it, absolutely fine. In fact, she called me afterwards and said, it's just hard for me to believe that I'm, I'm not feeling this, this anger anymore. How long does this last? And I said, as long as you want it to. Yeah. Don't, you don't have to justify the anger anymore. It's that simple. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Where can people find out more information or perhaps book a session with you or find out more about what you do? Good. Well, my, my uh, email, or they could go to my website, which is orangecountyhypnosiscenter.com. And I have a little, I'll probably have hopefully this interview on there as well. I do a little talk on my, uh, my website where they get a chance to see me and I'm basically talking in front of a fireplace about what we've been talking about today. And my number, if somebody wants to use it, is 714-624-1956. And they can call me at that number. And they generally won't reach me because it is a, a business number. But there'll be a message there. And they can leave a message and I'll, I'll work with them. I do FaceTimes with people all over the world. Fantastic. So it's fun. Yeah. Wonderful. Corey, thank you so much it's for joining It's my pleasure. Me. Thank you. So wonderful. Be sure to stay tuned for another episode of Do Tell Mama. I'm Julie Alexandria. Thanks so much for listening, everyone.